invite you to be turning in your Bibles to in the middle of 1 Samuel 16. Depending on your Bibles, it's likely a common break in the middle of chapter 16. <clears throat> Between verses 13 and 14, we'll be picking it up in verse 14. If you were here last week, we heard from our superintendent, uh, Jim Lashana, who preached for us covering the anointing of King David by Samuel the prophet. Uh, This is the second king of Israel that Samuel has anointed. The first was Saul, a character who will show up again today. And we'll also read about the first time Saul and David meet, or is it? Because the next story might seem a little bit confusing when David and Goliath happens. They seem to have a first meeting story again. So we'll talk about that probably, not probably, we will talk about that next week. But as you find your place in 1 Samuel 16, I wonder if you can identify with me. And I know that some of you may not have the same Christian or tradition or background that I might come from. So you probably won't identify. But if you do come from a similar background like me, have you ever read the gospel accounts or the book of Acts and go, huh, wonder why stuff like that doesn't happen anymore. (laughs) And I mean, perhaps the biggest thing we might say about it is, yes, Jesus was here. That's kind of a big deal. He's not here in the physical, tangible, fleshly way as he is, but... I'm kind of talking more about exorcisms and demonic activity and evil spirits being cast out. Now, I've met a person or two in my life who have said they've seen, heard, experienced something of that nature. My mentor said that he was visited by a guy once severely depressed, and my mentor said he felt pretty certain that the guy had an evil spirit in him. I've listened to pastors on the internet, two of which I listen to very often, and and in one or two of their sermons, they broke their norm, and they said even for them, this was not an everyday thing, but then they went on to describe having something witnessed some demonic activity. And I know this too, Dean's been smirking and shrugging, he hasn't, but I'm using him as an example. Where have you been, buddy? (laughs) And I I gotta say this too, I don't go out seeking this stuff. And I'm sure no one does either. However, I might go so far to say that if it's possible, I probably try to do the opposite. (laughs) I'm probably ignorant of the stuff because I don't want to wet my pants. (laughs) And I think what today's story tells us is that perhaps a lot of us are dealing with unclean spirits and we don't even know it. We don't acknowledge it. Perhaps the scary truth is, is we don't have an absence of unclean spirits. We have an ignorance of them. Today in 1 Samuel, we're really coming to a turning point, a precipice in the life of Saul. We've read about Saul making bad decision after bad decision. And it's as if this is what it's been leading to. And it's spiritual in nature, a significant spiritual change is happening. I invite you to stand one last time if you're able, and let's read in First Samuel sixteen fourteen, and read to the end of the chapter here. 
Now the spirit of the Lord had left Saul, and an evil spirit sent from the Lord began to torment him. So Saul's servant said to him, You see that an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord command your servants here in your presence to look for someone who knows how to play the liar. Whenever the evil spirit from, the, from God comes on you, that person can play the liar and you will feel better. Then Saul commanded his servants, find me someone who plays well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, I have seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the liar. He is a valiant man, a warrior, eloquent, handsome, and the Lord is with him. Then Saul dispatched messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son, David, who is with the sheep. So Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread, a wineskin, and one young goat, and sent them by his son David to Saul. When David came to Saul and entered his service, Saul loved him very much, and David became his armor bearer. Then Saul sent word to Jesse, Let David remain in my service. For when he has four, he has found favor with me. Whenever the spirit from God came on Saul, David would pick up his lyre and play. And Saul would then be relieved, feel better, and the evil spirit would leave him. Let's pray. Father, as we read this passage, um, I just pray, as I have been praying, that you would use this time these words to glorify you and to build the body of Christ up, that you would take from these words and give to us what it is you desire to. I pray for open and receptive hearts. I pray that your spirit would be ministering right now. Um, we ask that we would be followers like Jesus of you. And we ask these things in his name. Amen. You may be seated. So maybe I lied. I told you that I don't go seeking this stuff out, but I guess I didn't consider what I'm about to tell you as seeking it out. I admit that I had a bad habit, just one. No, okay, I had many, I'm sure. But a bad habit when I was younger and single. Many times, after working for Pepsi and Kuski, I, I stocked Kamii and Kuski stores. I'd get on my cell phone in Kuski and I'd call the pizza factory. And I'd call them, I'd make my usual order, because by the time I got back to Cami, I'd just go pick it up, go to my home. Usually I'd be home alone, dad and mom are at their jobs. And so I'd put on a TV show that I watched a lot, and it was called My Ghost Story. It was on the bio channel. It's like telling ghost stories around a campfire, but on steroids. There'd be videos and interviews, sometimes reenactments. Now... Mind you, I'm watching this from a Christian theological perspective. Uh-huh. Okay, I took a little enjoyment about the, the good spooky story. But what baffled me is the continued engagement on behalf of the people who would often experience more than scary things, harmful things. Attacks. Yeah, I mean, I enjoyed watching other people do these things. But I would never in a million years put myself in a situation like they did. But like I said, there would be attacks, visible scratches, videos and audio footage of 
people that they're interacting with, I really don't know what else to credit, but besides evil spirits, that seems to be the only biblical answer. And like I said, it baffled me that they'd continue or persist in their behavior. Like they found a haunted house, they got into trouble, and they'd say, after, you know, after that attack, and there were some scrapes on my neck, I thought it'd be a good idea to spend the whole night there to see what I can find. And, and I'm like, what are you doing? But what this demonstrates in one area of life is a demonstration in many areas of life for many people, and that is persistence in the wrong direction. Persistence in the wrong things of life. One of Samuel's last public speeches, Samuel the prophet, one of his last public speeches to a gathered representation of Israel and to King Saul back in 1 Samuel 12 was this. He says, however, if you continue to do what is evil, both you and your king will be swept away. Easy enough, not hard to follow. Most people get this on a simple level, except for apparently those on the My Ghost Story show, but most people get this. I shouldn't break the law to begin with, and I shouldn't break the law consistently. It's going to get me in trouble. Right? I shouldn't binge on food. It leads to health problems. Or I shouldn't get into fights with people. Just don't continue to do what is evil. What we've witnessed in Saul is a persistently evil heart. Out of the gate, since we've returned to the book of Samuel, since Dean opened it for us back in February, we've read Saul ignore the protocol of God. Ignore the office of Samuel and try to do a sacrifice himself. We've read Saul ignore God's commands and try to do other unauthorized sacrifices. We've read Saul here point blank several times, Saul, you're not the king anymore. You're disobedient. You're not listening to God. And Saul has done nothing to repent. He's never said, okay, have it your way, God. No, he's hardened his heart. And now we read a devastating truth. Now the spirit of the Lord had left Saul and an evil spirit sent from the Lord began to torment him. Now, this is very telling when contrasted with one verse prior in 16.13, which told us that Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, that is David, in the presence of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully on David from that day forward. See, David's got what seems to be an endless dose of the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit, perhaps as we understand it today, in the New Covenant, while the Spirit of God leaves Saul. But David's immediate and unlimited filling of the Holy Spirit contrasts with Saul in other ways too. See, we, we were told that Saul had been filled with the Spirit as well. Listen to this language in 1 Samuel 10, verses 9 and 10. It says, When Saul Turned to leave Samuel, God changed his heart and all the signs came about that day. When Saul and his servant arrived at Gibeah, a group of prophets met him. Then the Spirit of God came powerfully on him and he prophesied along with them. Or, when Saul goes to the first war after he's called king, this is kind of his proving ground to show that he is a king who fights 
Israel's wars for them. We hear in 1 Samuel 11 that when Saul heard these words, the Spirit of God suddenly came powerfully on him and his anger burned furiously. See, what we don't get here, though, is what David got. got. That's where the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully on David from that day forward. Rather, we just got instances in Saul's life where he seems to be empowered by the Spirit to do certain occasions, instances, and what this is like is compared to the previous book of the Judges. If you've ever read the book of Judges, it's like Israelites gone wild. That's the English translation of the book of Judges. That's not it. But the book opens basically saying the Israelites deteriorated, they regressed, they're they're pagan God worshippers, and then it closes with a wonderful summary. They all did what was right in their own eyes. And so, you know what's in between can't be good. But what happens is God raises up deliverers from time to time. And like God did Saul, God would rush upon these judges, these deliverers for deliverance from time to time. But what God is doing with David is is that when those things that look familiar takes an innovative twist, right? Even in the book of Judges, we have the Spirit rushing on people like Samson, Gideon, Jephthah. But like Saul, these are instances where the Spirit has come upon them for particular reasons, usually to save the people. But the innovative twist for David is that the Spirit stays. The anointing, the pouring out of oil over his head and the rush of the Spirit to stay on him reminds me of another man who after a baptism has the descent of the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove. See, David marks a new era in Israel's history. But we have verse 14 to deal with and the rest of the chapter if we ever want to finish. So how about this? Now the Spirit of the Lord had left Samuel, and an evil spirit sent from the Lord began to torment him. How about that? The Spirit of coming upon David, the Spirit leaving Saul. First, let's note this. This is not about personal salvation that we think of in the New Testament. Now, I mean... Their, their morality and the fruit of each person here, David and Saul, would suggest to us where they do stand before God. But the Spirit is not coming upon David to beckon him to God for salvation. And the Spirit is not leaving Saul to make sure he'll never get right with God. The Spirit, like he did in the book of Judges, is coming upon David for warrior, king, deliverer reasons to empower him to lead the nation, to empower him to fight Israel's enemies. Secondly, we hear in the New Testament things like no one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God since God is not tempted by evil and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. An evil spirit from the Lord was sent to Saul. It was from the Lord. It was evil. But I think this passage in James is relevant not because of what we might think to be a contradiction, that is, God not tempting anyone with evil, but because of how telling it is of Saul. Namely, Saul has been drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. 
See, it's not that the Lord is removing from Saul any chance whatsoever to be a believer and then going the other route and punishing him. But we have seen nothing in the book of 1 Samuel so far to suggest to us that Saul, or I should say what we've seen, suggests to us that Saul has only one mode of operation, disobedience, persistence in doing wrong. Saul has had chances to repent. If you have an outline in front of you, I entitled these first few verses, this section, An Unclean Spirit's House. And I did so taking it from an interesting parable of Jesus. Luke would record for us this way in Luke 11, 24-26. When an unclean spirit comes out of a person, it roams through waterless places looking for rest and not finding rest It then says, I'll go back to my house that I came from. Did you note the possessive there? Though an unclean spirit came out of a person, he still sees it as his house. Why is it still his house if he came out? Verse 25, returning, it finds the house swept and put in order. His house... The person he came out of was white-knuckling it. He was checking off his religious boxes. He stopped that habit. He stopped that sin. But then, verse 26, then the unclean spirit goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and settle down there. As a result, the person's last condition is worse than the first. What's the point here? What did the house, the demonized person, do wrong? Did you know that there are people out there Only interested in being righteous, clean, nice, tidy, and that's it. And there is a big problem with that. There's a huge problem with that. God doesn't call us to just be righteous. He calls us to follow Him. See, it's not just one of of moral perfection, but one of godly affection. Saul was constantly convicted because he's been caught He hadn't been in the right. He wasn't considered king material. Saul could care less, though, about the state of his relationship with God insofar as affections and heart stirrings for him. Saul was invested in the relationship selfishly. What do I get out of it? Not for God's sake, but for Saul's sake. And so, try as Saul might to clean the house, he's just making it clean, nice and tidy for more unclean spirits to enter. Hey, if you're dealing with a vicious cycle sin, just can't break the habit. It's not enough to empty yourself of that habit and cry out for God to save you from doing those sins. You got to fill the empty space with something else. Saul and his servants are doing a quick fix here. So Saul's servants said to him, You see that an evil spirit from God is tempting you. Let our Lord command your servants here in your presence to look for someone who knows how to play the lyre. That sounds funny to me, but I looked up the pronunciation. It is lyre. Whenever the evil spirit from God comes on you, that person can play the lyre and you will feel better. Then Saul commanded his servants, Find me someone who plays well and bring him to me. Seems reasonable because that's the first thing I think of when people are depressed and ask for help. Hey, you know anybody who plays the liar? (laughs) Anybody? I remember in high school about my ninth grade year, probably a little of my tenth grade year, I was just a very depressed guy. 
and common adolescent stuff, I suppose. But I grew an affinity for moody, emotional music. I listened to some hard rock. I listened to lots of screaming. I listened to some quiet, moody ballads. Oddly enough, none of that made me feel better. I don't know why. Um, but I can't remember if it was my 11th or 12th grade year, or maybe the summer right after I graduated. I flew down south to visit my older brother, Jeremy. And he listened to this band that sounded like, almost kind of reminded me of what Rocky Balboa listened to whenever he was taking his morning jogs. Only it wasn't Eye of the Tiger or 70s brassy type music, but it was electronic rock and pop. And I don't know if it was like visions of listening to that music in the South Carolina sun or the music of my vacation, but I got my own copy of the music and I started listening to it back home and it perked me up. Um, Many of you, I'm sure, have experienced the feelings that music can have in you. And this wasn't lost on old cultures, knowing that sometimes feelings of sadness and torment can be relieved or eased due to music. Uh, King Saul is sad and in torment, and lo and behold, as if by some amazing coincidence, the newly anointed king is apparently the only one in the kingdom of Israel who can fix this. How bizarre. Let's read verses 18 and 19. One of the young men answered, I have seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the lyre. He is also a valiant man, a warrior, eloquent, handsome, and the Lord is with him. Now we know this is David. The author in 1 Samuel 16 for the first half gave us the account of David, the son of Jesse. Valiant man and a warrior. Well, valiant man could also mean powerful or warrior-like. I'm, a, I'm just going to assume here that the author has a separate term for warrior. Maybe he means something a little bit different by valiant, which also it could mean notable or prestigious. Now, this is interesting because as it, David is the runt of the litter. Remember that Jesse didn't even have David out for Samuel to anoint until Samuel asked, Are these all your sons? Now, it could be chalked up to this, that as the runt doing the shepherding jobs, Jesse didn't even think that of his sons, David would be the one or that it could be. That could be it. It couldn't have been anything more implicit than that. David might not be a proverbial Cinderella. It could just be, well, Samuel's anointing one of my sons. It'll probably be the eldest, but I'll get all the older boys out. And so there's a big pick. (laughs) Furthermore. This term valiant man seems to be more about prestige and character. As Saul's, King Saul's father in 1 Samuel 9.1 was given the same Hebrew term, although the CSB translates it there as prominent. And the same thing is said about Boaz in the book of Ruth, who happens to be David's great-grandfather. He's introduced as a valiant man, a prominent man. And the point is, is that these servants of Saul apparently see a prominence, a valor in David. And they also call him a warrior. Now, people like to get hung up on this because a chapter later, why is David home while all of his brothers are out fighting if he's such a warrior? And when David says to Saul that he wants to fight Goliath, Saul says, no, you're just a youth. Goliath's been fighting since he's been young. Now, first of all, we could just be making assumptions. Maybe David is a warrior. David did say that he killed a lion and he killed a bear from attacking his sheep. 
Maybe he's had some other exploits, but David's likely tending to his father's sheep because his father requested it. (laughs) And for whatever reason, the servants here see in David a quality of warrior. He's eloquent. That means he's a good speaker. He's a musician and he's good with words. That's why most of the Psalms are written by him. He's handsome. The same thing was said about Saul. But then we hear the Lord is with him. That was the point of 1613. Unlike Saul, whom the Spirit of God left, David is filled consistently and continually with the Holy Spirit. Now, follow me on this. David is a prefigure of Christ. Perhaps the most towering, the most significant foreshadow of Christ in the Old Testament. Jesus is called the son of David. Jesus is the Messiah and the prophecies that would suggest that the Messiah is one who would come like King David. So I'm not going so far as saying that David is exactly like Jesus. But if Saul's servants, who apparently know David, can say that the Lord is with him, David's got to have some sort of peculiarity about him, right? It would seem to us that Samuel's anointing of David was relatively private, just the family around, but... Apparently, there was a righteousness, a presence of God about David. You don't just say, well, the Lord is with him about anyone. I would also say that the author of 1 Samuel wants us more to contrast this, that the Lord is no longer with Saul. Saul's being tormented, Saul is suffering, and God is bringing David in to ease the suffering. Because we know this, conviction and guilt, all these negative Feelings from God, while it drives unrepentant people like Saul mad, it's meant to drive us to repent. It's meant not to drive us further into unrepentance. Rather, the mighty hand of God is meant to drive us to submit. Verse 19 says, Then Saul dispatched messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son David, who is with the sheep. Such irony in this statement. Because we both know Saul would not be saying, Hey Jesse, send the newly anointed king of Israel into my courts. (laughs) Right? Like I said, how coincidental that the newly anointed king is coming to the courts. We may have wondered, how is a shepherd boy going to inherit the throne? How can someone outside the, the heir presumptive family take the throne of Israel? You know, it's almost as if it was by divine providence. (laughs) The king himself is inviting the next king into his very courts. And of course, we know there is nothing coincidental about it. But then all the questions we might think it proposes about God to send an evil spirit to Saul, we see that ultimately it's driving Saul and his servant to invite David to the palace. There's a big reason that an evil spirit is tormenting Saul. So Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread, a wineskin, and one young goat. People wonder if these are gifts for Saul or if these are resources that Jesse hopes will nourish nourish and keep David while he's at the palace. And sent them by his son David to Saul. David is in the house. This is how, this is where, this is when the highest leadership of Israel now has the company of David. And when David came to Saul and entered his service, Saul 
loved him very much, and David became his armor bearer. Now, I don't know, I've read this book several times. It's, I think First and Second Samuel are my favorite books of the Bible. And I just seem to miss this, passed over this. Armor bearers seem to be a bit more of a guy than just a person who carried the other person's armor around. We know this back in 1 Samuel 13 that Saul's son Jonathan and his armor bearer scaled a mountain and took out 20 men together. Armor bearer was a close confidant. In fact, when Saul would have another armor bearer in 1 Samuel 31 and Saul kills himself in battle, the armor bearer does likewise. It's likely soldiers and their armor bearers develop close relationships. It still could be a soldier and their servant, but also their friends. And it says right here, Saul loved him very much. It's five English words, but it has weight and meaning. It's not light. Saul loved David. Reminds me, if you were in public school, you noted or you saw teacher's pets, right? Teachers had those students who, in a, this is for me in a very healthy way, not in an inappropriate way, but they had chemistry. They joked They carried on conversations at times that seemed above or distant the other students. The teacher um, also seemed extra invested in them because they truly wanted to see them succeed. Not that a teacher would want to see any other student fail. But they just just had this understood, maybe not even spoken, but understood one-on-one relationship with a student. And I guess that's how I see Saul and David here. Then Saul sent word to Jesse, let David remain in my service, for he has found favor with me. Whenever the Spirit of God came on Saul, David would pick up his lyre and play, and Saul would then be relieved to feel better, and the evil spirit would leave him. I mean, if David could play a harp to lead Saul out of torment, there had to have been a love there. And it makes the whole rest of the story that much bittersweet, right? It's not too much for me to think, with the way I've been reading this book of 1 Samuel, that Saul and David probably had a more cordial, better friendship than Saul and Samuel ever had. And then comes the next chapter, and then on, Saul's going to start growing jealous of this man that he loves very much. This is because there are some spiritual powers at play. Spiritual realities. See, Saul thought he's cleared the house. Saul's invited David to his physical house. He gets help every now and then clearing out the proverbial house. But what happens is this house is being filled by all sorts of evil spirits because Saul's never cleared the house to invite Yahweh in. He's never cleared the house to fill it up with repentance and holiness and righteousness. He's always just in it for himself. And the same reason that Saul has alienated Samuel because Samuel's been telling him that he's been rejected and a new king's on the way is the same reason that Saul's going to alienate David because David just happens to be the new king. And all of this is never going to lead Saul to repentance. Saul is a house of unclean spirits. Some of you are like me, and maybe by this point you're still hung up on the whole, the Lord sent the evil spirit part. And you might think that God's not giving Saul a chance, but I want to tell you it's quite the opposite. God is giving Saul the best chance he can have. 
The ball is in Saul's court. All God can do at this point is soothe Saul's selfish temper tantrums. See, Saul is the one who has to confess and repent. Saul is the one who, in moments of sobriety and release from this evil spiral, after David's played the liar, when God is near, Saul's the one who has to seek him and say, You've been right all along. I'm holding on to a kingdom you've rejected long ago. But Saul never does that. What junk are you not dealing with? What stuff is in your house? And have you just been cleaning and cleaning but never filling it with better things? What pain from the past are you not letting go? What words that hurt you are you never forgiving? What sins that enslave you and you confess, but you never do the uncomfortable things you must do to overcome them because it's a little bit more public. The evil spirit let loose on Saul. God may have permitted it. God may have sent it, but it's really still Saul's fault. Saul has had plenty of time to repent. Friends, if you think the mess you're in now is bad, do not wait to repent. Do not melt in it a little longer. Don't let it fester. You have power and authority in Christ's name to not only confess, repent, but also to grow in grace. Has anybody ever been here like me? Sometimes we live like Saul and we live defeated lives. As if Christ's sacrifice means nothing. Christ's sacrifice means everything when it comes to what Saul's been going through. Paul is all over this in Romans 8. Paul says, And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then He who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through His Spirit who lives in you. So then, brothers and sisters, we are not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh. I wonder if you hear that. Now, some of us, are here. Kevin, I am where Saul is because I'm in a vicious cycle. I can't overcome this sin. I can't overcome this hurt, this pain, this whatever, and I don't know the way out. We're living obligated to the flesh to live according to it. And, Paul would continue, if you live according to the flesh, you're going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. We might say, Kevin, that's Christianese. I need some practical advice. Now, this is me telling you that we believe in a spiritual God. We have spiritual beliefs, and our answers are not always get a pen, check a box, do some penance, and you're good. Our answer here that Paul gives us is take hold of the very belief that you and I profess in the death of burial, gospel, resurrection of Christ. Call on the very Spirit we profess to believe that we have living in us and say, Holy Spirit, You died for my sins. You put death to my sins. You came and overcame the power of my sins. So I press into You to put to death the deeds of my body because I want to live. What does that mean? I can tell you this. It means 
more than not doing. Don't just stop the sinning, the hurting, the dwelling. Start the praying, the Scripture reading, and the doing. Every time that temptation comes up, sounds like a great time to get your Bible out. Every time that pain, that hurt, that dwelling comes out, sounds like a great time to pray for that person who hurts you. So you just can't empty the house. You've got to fill it up with Jesus. Let's pray. Father, many ministers and preachers and pastors and teachers have a great talent that sometimes I, that I, I guess I'm jealous as they, they're able to read the Bible and present practical truths, practical living advice. That's a great talent that serves the church well. Sometimes the answer you give us, it's not going to be practical. Because believe it or not, you are a supernatural God. We believe in a supernatural faith. We believe in a spiritual realm. We believe that the things we see, the things that we've talked about in prayer today that just disgust us and alarm us, Paul would tell us we're not fighting against flesh and blood, but we're fighting against spiritual powers and principalities, spiritual authorities. Father, when the sun rose up today, it rose up on two worlds, the world we see and the world we don't see. And Father, in the world we don't see, simply because we don't see it, does not mean there's not activity. There's perhaps just as much, if not more, activity than what we do see. And so, Father, for those of us wrestling as Saul has wrestled with sins, help us to note the urgency that you didn't come and die for small potatoes. Well, it's just sin. People have that every day. No, it it costs God to become flesh and die. So these aren't things we should tamper with. Whenever sin showed up at Cain, you told him that he's crouching at his door and it wants to have him. So, Father, I pray that for those of us who are dealing with sins or maybe we're dealing with past hurts and pains and relationship problems, whatever we happen to be dealing with that we long to get relief from, I pray that people will not let this time go through their hands, but rather right here and now that they would seek to not just confess, but also to repent and to call upon you and your power and the power that you have in your death and resurrection to live in us and to do battle for us. Father, we don't want this to be a day of defeat, but a day of victory. And that as we move forward and if we slip and fall again, we would not allow the enemy to tell us, you're washed up, that's the last chance. But no, rather to cling all the more tighter to you. Father, help us to fill in that empty space with Godward affections. That we're not just seeking to be righteous moral people, we're seeking to be followers of you. We're not seeking a thing, moral perfection. We're seeking a person, Jesus Christ. Father, we love you. We thank you and we ask and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.